onto the scene called Burger King. Are you hungry? For the first 20 years of their existence, they were viewed only as a slightly different alternative to a more well-known McDonald's. It wasn't until the year 1974 that Burger King changed the game completely by rebranding themselves under a new mantra. Anybody know what it is? Have it your way. Have it your way. Those seemingly insignificant, those who were around in the 1970s know and understand that that statement perfectly describes a culture change that took place in the 70s that has, in a very real sense, shaped and molded our country into what it is today. How many of you grew up in, were born in, or were at least around in the 1970s? Raise your hand. So you understand that Burger King got it right. They got it right. There was something that took place and something that happened in the 1970s where that statement, have it your way, definitely identified what the culture was trying to do. Matter of fact, as I was researching and I was looking into this, I found that they spent thousands of dollars uh, and paid development uh, and, and played, uh, paid advertising agencies. Uh, they paid them a lot of money to do the research on the culture and really stuff that had nothing to do with restaurant, nothing to, uh, restaurants or food, the, the food industry or business. It was just simply, I want to know what the culture thinks and we're going to use our new mantra to shape and captivate a culture change and we're going to use it for our benefit. So I say that to say that if you were around in the 1970s, you know that that's pretty accurate. And those of you that don't know, let me just build my case. 1973. In 1973 was the year that homosexuality was declassified as a mental uh, instability. 1973, that took place. Prior to 1973, it was popularly, ex uh, popularly accepted that if you had attraction within yourself uh, for someone of the same sex, something was different about you, something was wrong with you. But in 1973, although it was just microscopic, it changed the culture, and look where we are today as a nation. 1973, Roe vs. Wade. How many of you remember that? Prior to 1973 and prior to Roe vs. Wade, it didn't matter what you thought, across at least our nation, it was illegal to murder a baby if you were pregnant. It didn't matter the term, it didn't matter what it was, it didn't matter the excuse, it was illegal to murder, and I'm using that term specifically because that's what it is, it was illegal to murder a baby, but in 1973 you have Roe vs. Wade, and that changed. And if you remember correctly, it was just on the rarest of occasions and just within the first trimester, do you remember that? My how it has changed. We have far left uh, that mindset, but nonetheless, although it was just microscopic, that was a big deal in 1973. 1973, this, this is laughable. It was almost, I mean, it's laughable, but it, it, I'll explain it and you'll understand why it's such a big deal. 1973 was the first display of nudity on primetime television. Anybody know what show it was? A little show by the name of MASH. You remember that? Just be honest, raise your hand. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've seen it. 1973, they show the backside where the sun don't shine of radar. Do you remember? Uh, that, that sounds laughable because we see that on a day-to-day -day basis, but in 1973, that was a big deal. And the reason that it's a big deal is because now the culture that we live in today, anything is acceptable. Everything is acceptable. There are no parameters that are set up in regards to what you can say on television, no parameters in regards to what you can show on television, and really that, that finds its root all the way back to 1973, just that first slight insignificant display of nudity on primetime television. One more, 1978. This is gonna take some of you back. You might need to do an altar call. Be ready, Sarah. 1978 a little rock and roll album by the name of Saturday Night Fever was released. How many of you, when I said Saturday Night Fever, you remember, your mind goes back, you remember, uh, you remember, maybe you remember where you were. I called my dad this week and I, all I did, actually I texted him, which was a mistake because my dad doesn't know how to read text messages, but I texted him and I said, first thing that comes to mind, Saturday Night Fever, and he calls me, he says, John Travolta, and then I said, wrong one. Not the movie, I'm talking about the album. And the reason that that is significant is because uh, really the push and the drive and the motive behind that entire album was self-indulgence. 
Saturday night fever, the very name brings the connotation uh, that it's okay to indulge a little bit. Uh, and they boasted as they sang about immorality and they boasted as they would sing about, uh, uh, they called the decade, 1970, the, the decade of drugs, sex, and money. And that's exactly what they sang about, the Bee Gees and all those different groups, they sang about those. And if we were to compare 1978, the album, uh, 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 that, uh, Saturday Night Fever, to the filth and the disgusting, vile wickedness that we hear today, it would almost be elementary, but that was a big deal back then because prior to 1978 you didn't sing about having a one night stand in 1978 you didn't sing about disobeying your parents and going out uh, on a weeknight to get drunk and, and uh, blowing off school and doing all those things in 1978 uh, prior to that it really wasn't acceptable but a culture uh, the temperature of the culture was becoming this let's have it our way let's do what we want to do let's get back to Burger King 2014 Burger King did it again by once again taking the temperature of the culture and rebranding themselves under their new and current mantra. I had no idea that this took place. If you were to ask me just a few weeks ago, what is Burger King's mantra, I'd say, I'll have it your way. But in 2014, they did the same thing. They paid a lot of money and they wanted to take the temperature of the culture and here's their new mantra that they came out with. Be your own way. Be your own way. Is that, is that not, uh, that captivates our culture to a T. No longer have it your way, but now it is be your own way. Just be your own way. Be what you want to be. If you want to be something different than you're biologically uh, defined as, just be what you want to be. Be your own way. In Romans chapter number one, the apostle Paul summarizes and gives an indictment about the very culture that the church at Rome found themselves in, and without apology, very simply, this was his indictment. What is this world coming to? Paul, with great boldness, was challenging the worldview of the church at Rome. And a very important question that we must ask ourselves is this, why? Why? Why did he feel the need to challenge the worldview of the church at Rome? After all, these are God's people that he's talking to. In this letter that he's writing, he sends it and he's challenging the worldview of supposedly God's people. Why did he feel the need to ruffle the feathers of the church at Rome? Very good reason. And it's found in verse number 18 of our text. Paul says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Did you hear, did you catch it? The very beginning, for the wrath of God is revealed. Paul is telling the church at Rome, not that the wrath of God is coming, no, no, no. He says the wrath of God is revealed. It is here. We are living in the wrath of God. We are living under the wrath of God. In other words, he's telling them the culture in which they find themselves in because of their sin and unwillingness to adhere to the truth is experiencing the wrath of God upon them. That statement begs this question. What is the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? What does it look like? The wrath of God is the judgment of God or the anger of God being poured out. You say, hold on, Lamar. God's not angry. He can't be angry. Oh, yes, he can, and yes, he is. God is angry. He invented the emotion anger, so therefore he can feel it, but uh, we call it righteous anger. God is angry. Okay, Lamar, I'll give you that, but God's not judgmental. Oh, yes, he is. God is very judgmental. Because God is perfect, because God is righteous, he is required in his own personality to judge us according to our own unrighteousness. So yes, God is definitely angry, and he's definitely judgmental. I could say it this way. God is petty and judgmental. God is petty and judgmental. He is. He's petty in that there is no sin that is too small for him to just gloss over. Did you hear me? There's no sin that is so microscopic and, sub, and, such, and of such ill importance that he can just say, oh, I'll give you a pass. No, he's petty in that there is no sin too small that he is, he's not going to let go. And he's judgmental, again, in the fact that he is perfect and he is righteous and he is going to, in and of himself, judge us according to our, un, own, uh, our unrighteousness. So if God is petty and judgmental, here's a question I'd like us to ask tonight. What does his judgment or what does his wrath look like on our culture today? It's a good question. What did it look like in Paul's day? Verse 24, we read it together. Wherefore, God also gave them up. Verse 26, for this cause, God gave them up. Verse 28, 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. When we think of the wrath of God, no doubt we picture light, maybe we picture lightning and thunder coming from the sky. You know, or maybe we picture things like natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and so forth. Or maybe we even think of things like famine and uh, economical deficiencies and things like that. And although a mighty and a righteous God such as ours has the capability to be able to administer such judgment upon mankind, I believe that God's judgment looks a lot more like this. Okay, have it your way. Have it your way. God gave them up. When I was just uh, maybe eight, maybe nine years old, there was a little restaurant that was down the street from our house. Uh, it was called Wings and Things. Not Wings and Things, Wings and Things. And you'll never guess what they served. Wings and Things. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about the restaurant, we'd walk in and uh, you know the little cream colored uh, grade that they'd have just in the corner that they're required to show on the front glass, the grade A, B, and C? They always had a C. And I didn't know what that meant until now. Now I understand. The C means they don't care. They don't care. They got a C. They don't care. And uh, there's a good reason why they didn't care is because they weren't part of a chain. They weren't part of any kind of uh, chain of restaurants. They were just a locally owned place. But we go there because they have great wings and they have great things. And so we went, and I can remember, I was probably seven or eight years old, and I walked in and we sat together as a family, and I was at the age where I was wanting to do everything on my own. I want to order by myself. And so the waitress came over and she came to me. I don't remember the terminology, but they had the hot, you know, the different grades of hot all the way up to the hottest. I ordered 10 of the hottest wings that they have. <laughs> and uh, again, this is wings and things. Buffalo Wild Wings, Wingstop, Wing Street, they require you to be 18 to try their hottest wings or they make you sign a waiver. Wings and things don't care about you. <laughs> And so the waitress was gonna give this eight-year-old boy 10 of the hottest wings, and my dad interjected, and he said, hold up, time out, what did he say? Oh, uh, well, sir, he ordered 10 of the hottest wings. No, 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 no. Son, you don't need the 10 of the hottest wings. And I knew better than to argue with my dad, so I pleaded with my dad, dad, I can do it. I can do it, I can handle it. I have, a, I, I have a, an iron stomach, and I want hot, my, man, I desire hot, the hottest wings that they have. And amid my pleading, my dad finally said, okay, son, have it your way. <laughs> True story, you can ask my dad. That was when I was eight years old. I'm 26 today and I'm still suffering from the ramifications from eating the hottest wings that Wings and Things has to offer. Still have a pit in my stomach. Have it your way, son. I believe that in Romans chapter number one, God has revealed his wrath upon a nation because of their sin. God's revealed his wrath upon a nation who is going their own way. He's revealing his judgment upon a nation who has no regard for the ways of God. And I want us to see what that looks like in our own culture today. What are the commonalities between the culture that Paul was facing and the, the culture that we are facing in Christian America here today? A few things I'd like us to notice in our text. If you're taking notes, number one, I want us to see man's intentional self-determination. Man's intentional self-determination. This passage of scripture shows us that God has revealed himself to all mankind. There is not a man, woman, boy, or girl that breathes the breath of life that God has not revealed himself to. God has demonstrated his love toward us, all mankind, towards all mankind through the death and burial and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So therefore, we understand and we know that God has revealed himself to man, but if man does not accept the revelation of God, that's not God's fault, that's man's fault. The Bible teaches us that man is intentionally self-determined to go his own way. Of man's intentional self-determination, I'd like us to notice just a few things quickly. Letter A, I want us to see the evidence of God's truth for man in our text. The evidence of God's truth for man. We find it in verse number 19 and 20. Because that which, uh, excuse me, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that, love this, they are without excuse. The beginning of verse number 19 gives us the first evidence. The first evidence of God's truth is our conscience. Pastor spoke of this just last Sunday morning. Our conscience. Because that, verse number 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest, what are those next two words? In them. 
For God hath showed it unto them. Their conscience. Their conscience demands God's truth. I'm not talking about Jiminy Cricket. I'm talking about that inward feeling, that inward voice of reason, that inward sense of morality that we're all born with. Our conscience demands God the creator. Our conscience, even without prompting, demands a sense of morality. Again, that morality was placed there by God. Paul puts it this way in the next chapter, Romans chapter two and verse number 14, he says this, for when the Gentiles which have not the law, look at this, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also being witness. Our conscience demands God's revelation. Not only our conscience, but secondly, of the evidence of God's truth for man, his creation. His creation. How many of you saw Mount Rainier as you were driving to church today? Beautiful. I would say this, those who live in the Pacific Northwest are especially without excuse. Because we live in one of the most beautiful states, I believe, in all of the country. And as we drive down the highway and we see the evergreens, we see the mountains, we see the cascades and the beautiful stars, it demands a creator. Verse 20, it says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has placed our conscience within us and his creation around us. Why? There's a great purpose behind it. I am God and I am truth. I am God and I am truth. There's a conscience dwelling within us, even those who do not know God, that demands, I mean, I've read about missionaries going and talking uh, to these aborigines who've never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've never heard of God, but they come to the conclusion that this all came from something. Not only that, letter B, the embrace of God's truth by man. So we have the evidence of God's truth for man, our conscience and his creation, the embrace of God's truth by man. Has mankind received God's revelation of truth? Paul answers that in verse 21. Because that, when they, read those next two words with me, knew God, they glorified him not as God. So here's what Paul is telling the church at Rome, that, that God has revealed himself to man, and the evidence is undeniable. They knew God. They knew God. The evidence is undeniable. It's, it's, it's present in our conscience. It's present in the creation around us. They knew God, but they glorified him not as God. That's man's intentional self-determination. God's revealed his truth, but I am determined to go my own way. Number two, we see man's immoral self-deception. Man's immoral self-deception. What happens when man rejects God's truth? What happens when man's self-determination to deny the truth revealed by God for man leads them to reject God's revelation? Paul tells the church at Rome that rejecting the revelation of God's truth to man will lead to, letter A, selfish indifference. Selfish indifference. 21 again, read with me. It says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Paul tells the church at Rome that the first step in man's immoral self-deception because of their rejection of the truth of God is this, selfishness. Selfishness. They become consumed with themselves because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Sad three words, neither were thankful. Self-centered. Not only that, but they, they become indifferent towards the things of God. They become indifferent towards the word of God, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Because of this selfishness, it gleans a total disregard for the words of God. God, I understand that that's what you say in your word, but that's not my way. I understand that that's what you've revealed to man, but that's not the direction that I want to go. Paul tells the church at Rome that rejecting the revelation of God's truth to man will lead to selfish indifference, but not only that, it'll lead to this. Let her be sophisticated ignorance sophisticated ignorance. Verse 22, I love this. It says, professing themselves to be, look here, professing themselves to be wise. Professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. Does that not describe our culture? 
Does that not describe Christian America? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Our culture has confused being smart with being wise. They think that they're the same thing. Our culture prides themselves in their academic accomplishments, but the fact that they think that being smart and being wise is the same thing proves the immaturity of our nation today. There is a difference, in case you didn't know, between being smart and being wise. I've met a lot of dumb, smart people. I have. I've met a lot of dumb, smart people. This week I was uh, on Facebook and there's a page that I follow called Worship Leaders Plus. Some 20,000 worship leaders and uh, 90% of them are not from our movement. Uh, But nonetheless, I like to follow the page and I kind of like to keep up with what they're doing and so forth. Thousands of of posts every single day. And I looked at a post and I'm not going to share the content of the post because it was actually very inappropriate. But what they posted was along the lines of he was struggling with acting upon a fleshly desire for someone of the opposite sex. And so he put the this out there for all to see and uh, I don't know if you're like me but uh, I like to get on Facebook and look at comments rather than actually the post itself any drama queens you're a liar if you don't agree with me I like to read the comments I like to grab a bag of popcorn and eat and see what people are saying about whatever is on Facebook but nonetheless he posted this and it was posted one hour before I saw it and there was 192 comments Tons of comments, so many comments that the uh, actual admin got on the page and disabled comments because they didn't want to create a bunch of drama and a, a, a bunch of backlash. And so I just went on and I began to read. And the farther and farther that I began to read, the angrier and the angrier I became. Because the advice that they were given, uh, this is church leaders. These are people that, that, that they call themselves church leaders. They, they claim to be uh, student, or excuse me, uh, servants of God. And they're, they're giving this advice. And here was the popular advice that the nine out of the ten people were giving. Oh, he just needs to get married. He just needs to get married. He's struggling in and of himself with this, this lust and, 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 and this desire for someone of the opposite sex. And the advice that these Christians were giving him is he just needs to get married. So contrary to the teachings of the word of God. And then a lot of them said this, he just needs to get married because studies show, fill in the blank. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 7, ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ever learning. Oh man, ever learning. They desire to be educated. They're following uh, after the, the academics. They're, they're studying and they're doing all those things. Ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I have just one son. And I've got one on the way. Hopefully in a couple of weeks we'll find out that it's a girl. But I'm becoming more and more convinced as I look at the culture around me and my, my persuasion was not necessarily at this extreme, but the moment that I brought life into this world, my perspective changed in regards to America today. And here's what my perspective, why my perspective changed is because I'm scared to death of raising my children in 2019. Scared to death. Because we have a lot of people that profess themselves to be wise, but they are so far for, removed from the truth. By the way, parents, let me just put this little plug in. If you promote a textbook over this book, Don't be surprised when you raise children that are sophisticatedly ignorant. Didn't get a lot of feedback there. Don't be surprised when you promote studying for a test on Wednesday night at the the expense of coming to Ampt and being taught the word of God. Don't be surprised when they're 18 and 19 years old and they're going off on their own and they decide to depart from the church, depart from this word, and pursue after an academic education. I'm not condemning an academic education. As a matter of fact, a lot of the times we treat it like it's gotta be one or the other. That's so contrary. I believe that the biblical principles that we would follow if we adhere to the word of God is going to complement the pursuit of an education. But I can tell you right now, we're raising a generation of young people who are sophisticatedly ignorant. Paul tells the church at Rome that rejecting the revelation of God's truth to man will lead to selfish indifference. Sophisticated ignorance, but not only that, it'll also lead to this, letter C, shameful idolatry. Shameful idolatry, verse 23. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Skip down to verse 25. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature 
more than the creator. You say, Lamar, that, that sounds a lot like other cultures around us, but that doesn't sound like Christian America today. After all, we're a Christian nation, and we were founder, founded on Christian principles. There's not shameful idolatry going on in our nation today. Are you so deceived that you're actually convinced that there's not shameful idolatry going on in this country and by the way, I'm not talking about a figurative form of shameful idolatry. I'm talking about literal idol worship. Just not even a mile down the street on 35th Avenue, there's a Hindu temple where thousands and thousands of Bothell community residents go to worship 33 million false gods. Shameful idolatry. That's right here, not even a mile from this church. It's about a six-minute drive to get to the uh, Islamic center of Bothell, located again on 35th in the other direction. Here is a mission statement copied and pasted right from their website. Listen to this. Reaching out to all humanity to serve and engage Muslims by promoting the progressive values and teachings of Islam to advocate interfaith harmony in a multicultural environment and in advocation with the Quran. To promote Islam as the true religion by means of engaging good conduct and good behavior towards all members of our surrounding community. Shameful idolatry. Not in another country, in this zip code. Okay, Lamar, I'll give you that. Shameful idolatry. But that doesn't, that doesn't uh, identify the general population of Christian America. Well, baby, before we go any farther, we should identify what idolatry is. Idolatry is this. The worship or exaltation of anyone or anything above the one true God, Jehovah. I'll read it again. The worship or exaltation of anyone or anything above the one true God, Jehovah. By that definition, the worship and exaltation of money is a form of idolatry. Welcome to America. By that definition, the worship and exaltation, I already hounded on this, the worship and exaltation of an education is a form of idolatry. The worship and exaltation of social status or fame is a form of idolatry. I could go on and on to build a case on the commonalities between what Paul was facing in Rome and what we're facing in America today, but I think that we get it. We know where our nation is. Paul tells the church at Rome that rejecting the revelation of God's truth to man will lead to shame, uh, excuse me, selfish indifference, sophisticated ignorance, shameful idolatry, but ultimately it will lead to this. Letter D, sexual indulgence. Sexual indulgence. We won't labor long on this because I want to build on it in just a moment. But verse 24, quickly, it says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Skip down to verse 26. For this cause God uh, gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also, the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. We know where we are as a nation today. That verse. Sexual indulgence. In the world, yeah. What about in the church? Oh, Lamar, come on. I would agree with you that, man, our nation is messed up, but our churches today, surely we don't face sexual indulgence in our churches today. How many of you have ever heard by the, uh, a man by the name of Clayton Jennings? Clayton Jennings? Not a lot of people have heard. Good for you. Clayton Jennings is a modern-day preacher, and I use that term lightly, but that's what he's referenced as. A modern-day preacher, they call him the modern-day Billy Graham. And he preaches to millions across the world, not just our nation, but millions across the world. Has thousands of followers on Instagram, thousands of followers on Facebook. He has a website, he has a video blog. Uh, just the other day he posted a video and he had some 300,000 views within the first 24 hours. This guy's popular. And this is a direct quote from one of the videos that he released this week regarding homosexuality in the church. Listen to this. This is my message to every gay person. This is my message to every bisexual person. God loves you, and it doesn't matter what anyone else says about you. God accepts you as you are. He got it halfway right. He said, God loves you, and I want to be careful because God does love every man, woman, boy, and girl. doesn't matter if your life choices, but he got it very wrong when he said, God accepts you as you are. All right, Lamar. 
We're coming closer, but I still would disagree. It's popular in the modern-day Christian movement, but not in independent fundamental Baptist churches. Surely sexual indulgence is not popular in this movement, or maybe I could say it this way, in this church. I could use an illustration at someone else's expense, but how about I use an illustration of the person that's talking to you? Not even two Sundays ago, pastor was preaching on a Sunday morning and there was someone here uh, and they've come to our church a couple of times and uh, they have someone in their family that's struggling with homosexuality and pastor got up and he was preaching and pastor began to preach and he honed in on homosexuality. I was sitting right here with my wife and as he began to hone in on sexuality, my dirty rotten flesh inside of me popped up and it said, no, 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 pastor, not today. Of all days, not today. Shame on me. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever come to that persuasion though. Or have we become desensitized to sin? Oh yeah, we still hate it as long as it's not talked about or preached against. Again, that's where we are as a nation today. That's where we are as a church today. Paul tells the church at Rome that rejecting the revelation of God's truth to man will lead to selfish indifference, sophisticated ignorance, shameful idolatry, and eventually uh, sexual indulgence. So again, we have man's intentional self-determination. I know God's truth, but I'm determined to go my own way. We have man's immoral self-deception. Again, that selfish indifference, sophisticated ignorance, shameful idolatry, and sexual indulgence. Number three, man's inevitable self-destruction. Man's inevitable self-destruction. Paul tells the church at Rome that rejecting the revelation of God's truth to man is a one-way trip to self-destruction. What does it look like? Letter A, a nation becomes sexually deviant. A nation becomes sexually deviant. How so? Number one, a sexual redefinition. A sexual redefinition. We won't read it again, but we read about it in verse number 24 and 25. Paul tells the church at Rome that an indicator of a nation becoming sexually deviant is when they begin to redefine what God has already revealed. Paul is telling the church that a nation that has turned its back on the will of God will begin to redefine the things of God and the area of sexuality is no exception. All right, God. Good for you, but that's not our way. We live in a nation today that mocks the idea of celibacy before marriage. Mocks it. You go to public school, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The idea that you would refrain from sexual activity until you're married, they can't comprehend it. Why? Because they've redefined sexuality. The idea that a man would only engage in sexual activity between his wife and not indulge in self-fulfilling gratification through the lenses of the fantasy world of pornography is almost unheard of. Did you hear me? The idea that you're married and you you're fulfilled in your marriage where you, you don't actually have to go and, and look at pornography and all those things, that's unheard of. It's so popularly accepted. Why? They've redefined what God has revealed. Not only a sexual re-identification, but number two, a homosexual revolution. I know this is heavy, and I know we have kids in here, but uh, just bear with me. We won't read it again. Verse 26 and verse 27 paint a scary picture of the ultimate form of sexual deviance in a nation that has rejected the truth of God, and it comes in the form of homosexuality. This is where we transition from have it your way to just be your own way. Paul tells the church at Rome that an indicator of a nation becoming sexually deviant is when they begin to redefine what God has already revealed, when they begin to revolutionize what God calls vile affection in verse number 26, and that leads to the last indicator of a nation that has become sexually deviant. Number three, a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind, verse number 28, it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, stop, listen, and even when they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. A reprobate mind, what does that mean? A reprobate, we we use that term fairly often, I feel like, in our vocabulary, but we really have no idea what it means. A reprobate mind means this, an unprincipled person. Unprincipled, meaning in themselves they have no principle. In other words, they have no sense of morality whatsoever. 
So here's what Paul is saying. First, they'll change what God says about sexuality. That will lead to a revolution of homosexuality. And eventually, all senses of morality will be completely removed. All parameters of sexuality will be completely removed. Time out, Lamar. We're messed up, but we're not there. Surely, even the world understands that there are parameters set up in place as far as sexuality is concerned. I'll give you that, yes. But we are fastly departing from the area of, in regards to the area of sexuality, we are fastly departing from any parameter set in place. I don't want to be graphic, but I believe that we are maybe a decade away. This is what we're going to face in our churches and in our families. I believe we're a decade away where all parameters of sexuality will be completely removed and all sexual preferences will be accepted. All sexual preferences. You fill in the blank. That's a pretty big accusation, Lamar. On what grounds? Romans 8, 28. And even when they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Paul tells the church at Rome that an indicator of a nation becoming sexually deviant is when they begin to redefine what God has already revealed, when they begin to revolutionize what God calls vile affection, and that leads to a complete removal of all parameters of sexuality as God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Okay, nation, have it your way. The wrath of God is being poured out upon a nation that has rejected the truth of God. What does this self-destruction look like? A nation becomes sexually deviant, quickly letter B. A society becomes socially disillusioned. A society becomes socially disillusioned. Verse number 29, it says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural uh, affection, implacable, unmerciful, welcome to America in 2019. We are living in a society that is socially disillusioned. What do you mean? We have no idea how to function. We have no idea how to function as a nation. Right is wrong and wrong is right. Up is down and down is up. We have come so far from the just little blimp on the radar in 1970. We vastly departed from that mindset. And we have revolutionized every parameter, every guideline, everything that God has placed in his word. That's where we're living in Christian America in 2019. In 2019, we are now having the discussion on whether or not it is murder to kill a full-term baby in the womb. Full-term 1970, just in the first trimester and on the rarest of occasions. But just a few months ago, in several of the states that we call, that make up Christian America, they voted that you can now go and you can murder the baby the day before, the day of, as long as it's still in the womb. That's where we're at as a nation. In 2019, we are now having the discussion on whether or not it is considered insanity to say that someone who was born a man must actually be a man and someone who was born a woman must actually be a woman. Don't say that. That's not politically correct. Our inability to function as a society is a product of being under the direct wrath of God. What does this self-destruction look like? A nation becomes sexually deviant. A society becomes socially disillusioned. Lastly, letter C. A generation becomes spiritually deceived. A generation becomes spiritually deceived. Verse 32. Who, knowing the judgment of God. Did you catch the first part? Do they know the judgment of God? Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, get this, but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, they know the truth of God and the ramifications of their willful sin against the revelation of God. That is the judgment of God being poured out. They know the judgment of God, but for some reason, they think that they are above having to pay the price for their sin. Spiritual deception. 
question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you were more disgusted by sin than you are right now? Have you ever, have you become desensitized to wickedness? Does sin still bother you like it used to? Has it ever bothered you? Paul tells the church at Rome that the world around them has a self-determination to reject the truth of God, leading to their own immoral self-deception and ultimately their inevitable self-destruction. Paul tells the church at Rome that the world is messed up. And I don't need to convince anybody tonight that the nation that we live in is messed up. We'll talk about this in just a moment, but the city that we live in, even more so. Gee, Lamar, thanks for the encouragement. Now what? Now what? Our city has gone to the dogs. Our nation has gone to the dogs. We have so far departed from this world, or excuse me, this work. Now what? I'm glad you asked. Here's what Paul tells them. Paul gives them some good news. Paul gives them some good news. Paul gives them something that had the power to change a culture and transform an entire generation. But before I tell you what it is, can I do what my wife hates? Can I tell you what it isn't? She hates it. She hates it when a preacher will come in and say, let me tell you what it's not. Can I tell you what Paul didn't tell them? Listen, Paul did not tell them to go to the polls and vote in the coming election. Hello? Paul didn't tell them to go to the polls and vote in the coming election. Why? Paul understood that elected officials were not going to save Rome. I'll move on. You know what Paul didn't tell them? Paul didn't tell them that church involvement would help spread light on a spiritually darkened society. Paul didn't tell them that the answer was found in the church. What did Paul tell them? Number four. Paul told them the master's intention for society's depravity. He told them the master's intention for society's depravity. And we find it, back up, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Unlike what I did tonight, Paul gives the good news before he ever utters and mentions the immorality of the nation and the immorality of the culture that the church at Rome found themselves in. Here it is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone, sorry Calvinist, to everyone that believeth. Paul's saying this, the sin is great, but the grace is greater. The darkness is deep, but the cross reaches deeper. Paul is telling the church at Rome that the solution for man's immorality can be found in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's telling the church at Rome that the answer has been and forever will be the gospel. The gospel. Here's an interesting fact. Did you know that the book of Romans, which by the way is Paul's longest epistles to the churches, the book of Romans is the longest epistle again, and, and, and this is where we get the majority of our doctrines and practices as a church in the New Testament. Now, doctrines and practices are referenced throughout the Old Testament, but none really so clearly articulated than can be found in the book of Romans. And understanding that, understanding that the book of Romans is full of the doctrines and practices, do you know what Paul spends the majority of the time expounding upon in Romans? Here's a hint. It's not the ordinances. It's not dispensationalism. It's not eschatology or ecclesiology. No, it's the gospel. God, he spends the majority of the book of Romans expounding upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Paul understood himself of the transforming power of the gospel. 
Paul looked at a con condition of the culture around him and rather than becoming overly concerned with the immorality and the sin and the filth that the condition of the culture around him and the condition that the nation of Rome was in, rather than becoming discouraged, Paul looked at the condition of the culture around him and said this, if I, God can change me, the chiefest of sinners, what he refers to him as, himself as in 1 Timothy, if God can take the chiefest of sinners and through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, bring forth redemption, I choose to believe that the gospel has no limit. Let's fast forward some 2,000 years. If the power of the gospel had no limits in the days of Paul, I choose to believe that the gospel can take a, a society as twisted and demented as our nation today and transform the lives of those who cash in on the master solution for man's depravity. If the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ worked in Paul's day, it'll work in our, our nation today. There's still power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. But they can't um, experience the gospel unless they hear the gospel. So who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell them? Gee, Paul, you're right. Rome's messed up. Culture around us has gone to the dogs. And it's not looking too good. And yes, there's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God did something in your life, Paul, on Damascus Road. And he did something in my life. He did something in all of our lives. The world needs to know, but I don't know. Who's gonna tell him, Paul? Flip forward a few chapters in chapter number 10. Paul answers that question with a series of rhetorical questions in chapter number 10 and verse number 14. We know it. You don't have to turn there. He says, how then? Shall they call on him who, uh, how, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of, next two words, read them with me, good things, good news. Again, Paul is asking a series of rhetorical questions, knowing full and well that the church at Rome knew the answers. They knew the answers. If Rome is going to know the gospel, church at Rome, you're going to have to show the gospel. You're going to have to tell them about the saving power of Jesus Christ. Wooden Valley Baptist Church, we're living in one of the darkest cities in our nation. Seattle is a breeding ground for immorality, idolatry, and despair. And anybody that's lived here any length of time, know full and well, I don't need to convince you, that Seattle leads the charge with great boldness and pride in the progressive movements of our nation. And in most instances, when it comes to progressive thinking, Seattle is 10 and 15 years ahead of the rest of America. We are living in a spiritually darkened city. So we have one of two choices. <clears throat> we have one of two choices. Number one, we can wave the white flag, huddle in a corner, and just hold on till Jesus comes, which is where you will find the majority of Christians today. Just holding on till Jesus comes not gonna share the gospel, not gonna tell the good news, not gonna tell the saving power of Jesus Christ. We're just gonna hold on till Jesus comes. And you know why they do that? Because we don't wanna get any of the dirt on us. We don't wanna get infiltrated into the world because we might get some of their dirt on us. So we can do what the rest of Christian America is doing and we can huddle in a corner and just hold on till Jesus comes. Or we can, like Paul, say this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. My challenge to you this evening is simply this. Let us be faithful to boldly proclaim the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ across the street and around the world. I could say it this way. 
I could say it the way that someone said it 33 years ago when they started Wooden Valley Baptist Church. Some of you don't know our mission statement. Proclaiming the word of God to make Christ known throughout the Seattle area. In order for the world to know the gospel, in order for Seattle to know the gospel, we have to be faithful to show the gospel. What does that look like? This Saturday, you knew it was coming to this. This Saturday at 10.30, like we do every single Saturday, we will accumulate here at Wooden Valley Baptist Church. Usually we meet in the fellowship hall. And unlike most Saturdays, what we're going to do this Saturday is we're gonna load up in a couple of vans and we're going to go to one of the darkest corners of our city in West Seattle and we're gonna go with Brother AJ and Emerald City Baptist Church and we're gonna tell a, a, a city that needs the gospel about the gospel. Where will you be? I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to pray, uh, bring guilt. I understand that there are things going on, but I'm simply saying, where will you be? Are you prioritizing anything over the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me add to it. May 19th, I love my church Sunday. And let me let you in on a little secret that only the staff knows. Um, any day that we have at our church, we just slap a name and we might have some different recognitions, but it's all a facade. Really, we're just trying to get people here to hear the gospel. That's all we're doing. We're just trying to get people here to hear the gospel. And we have I love my church Sunday. Brother Hightower knows, and prayerfully, Brother Hightower will preach from this pulpit a gospel message, and he'll preach it to a room full of people that need the gospel. But the only way they're gonna be here is if you invite them. They won't come if you don't ask them. In order for our nation, in order for our city, in order for the Bothell community to know the gospel, we must be faithful to show the gospel. Looking over at Brother Clem has a desire to start a bus route. Bus kids need the gospel. There's different communities in here where we could get kids to come to this church. Bus kids need the gospel. And Brother, Brother Clem is willing to do it on his own. But what Brother Clem can do by himself can be multiplied with every person that says, hey, I'll help. I'm just simply saying, we have the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are beneficiaries of the power of Jesus Christ. What makes us think that we are right with God and not extending it to a spiritually darkened world? To, for people to know the gospel, we must show the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone, I love that, everyone that believeth. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the invitation. And Lord, what I would say to the church, I would not only say to the church, but first to me, Lord, I pray that you would help me to be on fire 